Books can take us around the world. They can take us to the intimate spaces of human experiences, and they can help us grow through their words. Stay tuned for People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Very pleased that we are finally getting to chat. Yeah, it's terrific. Nice, but, nice to speak with you. But really sorry that we're not able to do this in person. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's a real pity. Um, but I just, do have to say, I mean, I'm re- busy reading Legacy at the moment. I haven't finished it. But it is so beautifully written. Thank you. And um, I, I just, being able to tell... Um, history like this and the story of a family in such a way is is really a gift and obviously something that you have a knack for because um, I think that, I mean, I have read biography, autobiography, historical fiction, non-fiction, and there is a certain way that, that it needs to be told without being boring and you are certainly able to do that. So I really need to commend you for the way that you you tell the story of the family. That's, that's very kind of you. I appreciate it. I really do. Thank you. It means a lot. So, I mean, obviously, the, um, the lion's name is very much part of, of British history. Yeah. Yeah. So, so um, I mean, Jay Lyons uh, was an extraordinary catering company. Uh, it's my family's company. Uh, my grandfather was the chairman. His father was the chairman. His uncle was the chairman all the way back to its creation in the 1870s and uh, when they uh, started this tobacco company called Salmon and Gluckstein and that was the largest tobacco retailer in the empire uh, including South Africa and uh, they built uh, this extraordinary business from nothing having arrived in Britain as immigrants with literally nothing uh, when they came over from Europe in the 1840s and arrived in East London uh, Whitechapel and they started from scratch and it's really the story of how an immigrant family uh, created their own uh, power, their own identity and struggled to assimilate into this country where anti-Semitism was really strong uh, and various uh, decades rolled, uh, decades rolled on, there was one form of anti-Semitism and, and then another, and they, uh, they were able to respond to that. Yes, and I mean, they did, as you say, escape. That, that is why they wanted to leave Europe. I mean, they, they saw what direction things were going in and wanted to leave for a better life. And in many respects, things were, if not as bad, I mean, they, they exchanged one set of, of negative um, negative things for, for another because they, they did face huge adversity, um, especially yes. in, in, in my chapel. I mean, and, you know, going through the generations, when you look at the mortality rate. Yes, yeah, so, I, mean, I mean, I'm not very familiar with the 19th century history of Central and Western Europe. Um, as I am of 20th century, I've written a couple of books about the rise of National Socialists, Nazis, um, because my father's family, Alexander's, lived in Germany in the 20s and 30s and had to flee uh, the National Socialists and came over to Britain. But we're talking about the 19th century, and uh, I didn't know, but there was this real uptick in anti-Semitism around 1819, just a few years after the Napoleonic Wars, 
These are called the Het Het riots. Uh, you may know about them. I didn't know about them. And these were this wave of anti-Jewish uh, protest riots um, actions, which swept up through Western, what is now called Germany, uh, Bavaria, up to Frankfurt and beyond. And uh, my family became you know, caught up in that victims. And after the fallout of that, they changed, Prussia then changed lots of the rules uh, and became very anti-Jewish uh, in terms of their requirements, in terms of what Jews could do, uh, and threats to life. And this is what forced the family. And you're absolutely right, this is the start of the journey, the start of the trauma, but very much not the end. And when they came to London, one of their big motivations, as they saw it, was by selling to business, they thought they could accumulate the skills and tools to be able to protect themselves. And, uh, you know, this was very much part of their, you know, mission. Uh, little did they know that, you know, economic power is not the only thing that you need to protect yourself. Yeah, you know, absolutely. there's also uh, strong uh, uh, attacks come from other directions. And this is what they experienced. As their business became more successful, they still were victims, um, uh, caught up in anti-Semitic uh, attacks. You know, for example, the uh, British Union black shirts, Oswald Mosley, the black shirts, yes. you know, in the 1930s, they were very much at the centre of that. But then there weren't only the external issues. There were a lot of, there was quite a, a few issues within the family itself. Um, there was that, that quite infamous court case that caused huge conflict within the family. Yes, I mean, the, so there's really two big original traumas that the family had. One was this need to flee Europe and um, flee the prejudice of what was then Prussia. The second one was really in 1870, where uh, Samuel Gluckstein, who was the first of the family to come yes. to Britain, so the family was called the Salmon and the Gluckstein's. It was one family, but they intermarried so much. Uh, even though there's the Salmon and the Gluckstein's, we really think of them as one family. Uh, for example, my great-grandfather was one of 15 children, wow. of which six really sadly died, and of the nine, of the, of the nine remaining, seven married their first cousin. Wow. So it really was one large family. Yeah. And in 1870, Samuel uh, was taken to court by his brother and his brother-in-law. Yes, that, yeah, that, that is the court case that caused such a... Yeah. Animosity. Yeah, they had this, they had this court case in their tobacco business, and they accused him of stealing a bond, an insurance bond, and of being a bully to the, the staff. And he then accused them and said, look, uh, to his brother-in-law, you've been sexually abusing my teenage daughter. And you can, you know, I mean, how horrible is that? I mean, you can imagine um, how humiliating for the family uh, to have this all heard out in public, and Samuel, Samuel sent his 15-year-old son, Monty, and Monty was, became the driving force of the family. And he went to court and he heard all this, and he, was, he felt terrible and embarrassed, and he came back. Uh, they, the, the business was broken up, the assets were separated, and he came back and he said to the, his uh, brothers and his fathers, his brothers and brothers-in-laws, excuse me, uh, we need to uh, make a commitment here now that family comes before anything else. Unity is the most important thing. And that then became the centralizing force of the next decades um, as, the, as the business and the family went forward. Yes, and he, he really became the driving force of the new business that was formed. And he created something that he called the fund. 
yeah, exactly. So he, so he was. I mean, you have to think of Monty as kind of the Steve Jobs of the fan. Yes, fan absolutely. He really you know, was, he was the really, great. Yeah. And I think that that court case, as much animosity and and trauma as it caused, because I think that was actually the beginning of the end of Samuel, really, because he his health deteriorated from there and. And, you know, he died quite soon after that, I think. Um, yeah, so Samuel, died, so Samuel died three years after the court yes. case, and then the, the responsibility of the family really turned to his, his son, who everybody could see, even at a young age, was the most dynamic, uh, the most in, in, uh, inventive, um, hard-working. he was actually only about 18 when his father passed 15. away. 15. Well, he was really, you're right, he was 18 when his father died, 15 when the court but case yes, happened. Yes, at the time of the court uh, case. And, 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 and he very much took on the responsibility of the family members, and he, he called a meeting of his brothers and brother-in-laws, and he said, look, you know, we need to, we need to come up with a, a, a structure for our way forward. And he, he, he developed this extraordinary idea of this thing called the fund, and the fund was a, a, a remarkable and unique um, identity, and the basic concept was Going forward, anyone who was part of the fund uh, would not only would they share their income, but they would share the assets. So, yes. if you were the janitor, you got paid the same as the CEO, the president of the company. Um, if one person got a horse and cart, then everybody got a horse and cart. So, um, some people described it as almost a communist yes. approach. I mean, even though this sort of hyper capitalistic, hyper entrepreneurial business, there was this idea of egalitarianism which really bound the members of the family together. Um, and it was a way of cementing the unity and also creating this driving force uh, which propelled the business and the family forward. I mean, and he took a huge risk because um, not all of his brothers and his brothers-in-law agreed with it. They didn't all go for the idea. Some of them um, opted out. And he was, he was extremely lucky that the majority... Um, voted in favour. Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not even sure it was a majority. He, he, he approached all his brothers and brothers-in-laws, and this was very much the men who were invited into the fund. You know, there were various women who were working for the business, including Monty's sister, Lena, who was this And she, I think, was the only woman who was consulted. She was the only woman yeah, exactly. who was consulted on anything, because I think the motto of the fund, the, of the fund was um, something along the lines of don't tell the women. Yeah, this, and they had this, you know, this, this uh, attitude where, you know, there was this myth that maybe the women had, had, had shared information and that had been called the difficulties between Samuel yes. and his father and the brother and the brother-in-law, who knows? But there was definitely this sense of um, uh, we're, we, the men, are going to take this forward. And this is at the time, don't forget, the Victorian period where... Um, it was aspirational for for upper middle class, middle class, upper middle class women not to work. You know, the idea was, you know, you want to attain enough power and wealth that the women don't have to work. Certainly people um, of, of less wealth, less income work. Women work very hard. And so that was very much of its time. Uh, and uh, going forward, as the fund progressed, the uh, money was then... Uh, Continued to be passed down into the, to the men, and I think when this really became a, a structural problem for the family and the business, it worked incredibly successfully. 
um, all the way through to the Second World War. Then after the Second World War, it definitely became a straitjacket, partly because women were excluded, uh, which caused rancor and, and disaffection dysfunction. But also, after the Second World War, there were some men who didn't want to be part of the fund, who could probably make more money if they... Um, if they worked for another company yeah. and got paid from that, because even the way it worked is, let's say you wanted to work as a lawyer, you still had to contribute your income into the fund, yeah. even though you didn't, even if you didn't work for the family business, and then you then got what everybody else paid. Well, after the Second World War, there might be some uncle who didn't know, you know, who hardly worked at all, but he was being paid as much as his usual, even though you're working for some top law firm, and you can see how that might have caused a little bit of disaffection. Um, and what started as this incredible motivating force and became this incredible unifying force, by the middle of the 20th century, then into the 60s and 70s, really became uh, a tension within the family. And it caused an enormous amount of heartache because the grandsons, the great-grandsons, the great-nephews, the great-grandnephews, who worked out incredible appreciation for their ancestors, who wanted to do right by them, who felt loyal to the family, felt that they wanted their independence. Yes. And that then led to these discussions uh, in, the, in the 70s and 80s, um, which eventually led to the breakup of the fund in 1990, which so, that was 120 years of the fund kept going, and then eventually it was split up in the 1990s. So it kept going for an incredibly long time and kept the family, you know, the loyalties and the family, you know, the, the sense of community that is instilled in the family is actually incredible. It certainly is, and, and it's still there. You know, I was, when I was writing the book, when I was doing my research, because I, 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 when I started, I really didn't know the family. I knew my father's family. You know, sometimes in families, you get to know one side, yes. one side of your parents' family, not the other. So I always, when growing up, we spent time with my dad's family for anniversaries, celebrations, uh, and get-togethers. So I didn't really know my mother's family. I knew my uncle, my grandparents, uh, but no one else decides that. I mean, if I'd met them in the street, I wouldn't have known them. And then during the research, during, the, during this book, I began to see and hear what people thought about the family. And there was, there was a lot of nostalgia for the good times. There was quite a lot of pain and, and sadness about some of the things that happened, especially from the women who felt that they had been locked out of decision-making. It was sidelined, yeah. There was, but, but, there was, but, but the, the largest feeling was a sense of appreciation and gratitude and gratefulness. And there was still a very strong sense of unity within the family. People don't see each other as much as they used to. And interestingly, there's also there's some family traits and characteristics. And again, I think, I think all families have this, don't they? They have family traits, family mannerisms, those jokes and kind of stories. And those are still very much part of the family. Um, and even though I hadn't grown up with the family, I still knew some of these things and was familiar with them. So for me, it's been a wonderful exercise of getting to know, becoming familiar, uh, even the word familiar, right? The family, familiar. Yeah. Uh, becoming familiar with my relatives has been, it's been, you know, incredibly enjoyable. I love it when you this is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. If you've just tuned in, we are listening to the interview that I did with Thomas Harding when I was in Cape Town last week. It was a telephonic interview, and Thomas Harding is the author of a book by the name of Legacy. It's about his family who left the legacy of the Lions Corporation to the global community. 
and we will continue with that interview right now. I did love the the incident at the beginning of the book that said that um, that the history needs to be it needs to be recorded and it needs to be the the history of the family ought to be written. And this was said by Jeffrey Salmon in 1974, and that when it is written, the author must be allowed to write about us as he or she pleases, without being inhibited by the sort of constraint that I, for one, would want to impose if it were written now. And this means that the, the history will not be written for many years. And I think that's very wise. Yeah, so this is written by Jeffrey Salmon, and he wrote that in the 70s, because the family was extremely worried about reputation and uh, they were very concerned about, you know, because of the history of anti-Semitism, because yes. of their various traumas, they were very concerned about putting their head above the parapet, about making a fuss about themselves. So interestingly, even though no one had published anything about the family, they had commissioned a bunch of stories, memoirs, uh, written about themselves privately and they had those and they had various letters and papers, they had various um, uh, testimonies of people describing their relatives. Uh, so I was incredibly fortunate when I approached some of the elder members of the family with the idea of writing this book. Not only did they say, yes, we'd like to, and not only did they say, we're now in a position to do it, you know, yes. many years later, you know, over 40 years after Jeffrey Salmon had written that letter. Yes. Uh, but also, we have all these documents, all these archives, which we'd like you to have. And that was the basis of the book. Uh, and I was able to not only have access to the public archives, because Jay Lyons was this extraordinarily famous and well-known business, you know, with brands like Lyons Maid and Lyons Tea and Lyons Cakes and Swiss Rolls, uh, Wimpy, Tech and Tea, Baskin Robbins, Duncan Donuts, you know, these incredibly yeah. famous brands. And so there were photographic archives and documents in the public libraries, but then also I had access to the private letters and memoirs and stories, and which enabled me to tell the story from an emotional point of view. Because to me, when I'm writing books, it's really about narrative non-fiction. So everything is true, it's based on fact, but it's taken from an internal point of view, from an emotional point of view, as well as from an external public point of view. And so I felt really are, lucky to access those documents. That's what I wanted to actually um, ask you about, because that's what I think makes the writing so emotive and so so much less of a... Of a, of a it's, it's less scientific, it's less, you know, it, it's a story, but you can tell that this, it hasn't been fictionalized in any way. You obviously did have access to the fact, and I wanted to ask you, how did you have access to the fact? And now you, you have, um, you, you've let me know how you had access to the fact, because even though, as you say, nothing had been written previous, that they, they were, they were um, making notes of this and having their memoirs taken down privately because they were a very private family. And that they did um, want everything recorded. And um, they obviously realized that it was extremely important for this information to be recorded. And yes, so yes. I mean, when, I mean, in terms of the kind of books I like reading, you know, I'm, I'm not personally a big fan of those very large, dry histories. I just have a hard time reading them. I know some people like them, that's not for me. You know, I'm, I, I like historical fiction, I like, you know, thrillers. You know, I like books which are readable and you want to turn the pages. I want to, I want to be gripped and get lost in the story. And, and you want your so reader to engage. And, and Exactly. I want, and, and I want people to read to the end. And so I'm using those the techniques that make you want to read books 
I'm hoping using the, the techniques um, that people um, use in thrillers and in fiction, historical fiction, in dramas, but with history. Um, so that's using things like, you know, how do the characters arc develop? How do you set up drama? How do you create tension between people? How do you use a sweep of history, but how it impacts people personally? And those are the kind of what I'm trying to do when I'm writing my books. Uh, I'm, I really want people to get lost in the story, uh, but at the same time, not make things up, keep to the facts, um, so that there's a sense of authenticity and a sense of, oh my goodness, this is real, this stuff actually happened. Yes. For example, is it in, incredible, the family, this maker of cakes and, uh, and uh, tea bags, this family was given the responsibility in the Second World War to make bombs to make for the and, and, and by the end of the Second World War, you know, because they knew how to follow a recipe and they could deliver on time and of a certain quality, they had produced one-seventh, one-seventh of all the bombs dropped by bomber command on Germany during the Second World War. You know, so that's an incredible historical fact. And so building on that, you know, because my grandfather was involved and his relatives, I then was able to tell that story through the eyes of the people who were involved. Um, which hopefully other people will find interesting. Personally, I can fascinate. It is fascinating, but I think it was also so important to the family that they were seen as being extremely patriotic to a, com a country that has had made itself home to them. It had given themselves a home when they had been seeking refuge from a place that they no longer felt was their home. Well, you see, this is the, the whole, one of the large arcs of the book is about assimilation. You know, when you feel like you belong, when your, does your identity merge with that of your host culture? And even a hundred years after they arrived in Britain, so in the 1940s, a century after their arrival in Britain, they were still experiencing anti-Semitism, xenophobia, uh, because of, of, you know, being Jewish, being from Germany, uh, and that uh, was very much part of their story. And, and it motivated them to uh, behave in certain ways, whether it was, you know, to keep their heads below the parapet or try and be more British than the British, you know, send their kids to, you know, the top schools or strive to be part of the parliament. Um, and all these things happened. Um, and so by the 1950s and 60s, they were very much part of the establishment. My mother was a debutante. She was introduced to the Queen and when she, um, my parents were married, their, paper, their picture was in the paper, you know. And so I don't think it's a coincidence at the time that the family had finally assimilated you know, into British culture, mm -hmm. then most of them had walked away from mainstream Judaism, you know, they had become more liberal, um, they were attending, uh, they were no longer, uh, had kosher families or kosher kitchens, uh, they, uh, they were driving to Shul for Shabbat, you know, if they were attending Shabbat at all, yeah. at the very time they were assimilating was the time that the business was struggling. Because that motivation, that driving force, that passion had really gone. Um, from the, you know, from the family, and they were now British, and they then went on their separate journeys. You know, there was no longer a need that driving need to be so united, yeah. uh, which I think was really interesting. Yeah, no, that that is a it's a huge point, in fact. Yeah, um, and and you you also um, a couple of years ago you also wrote a book called The House on the Lake. House by the Lake, yeah. House uh -huh. by the Lake. Which was, it's also about five generations of family, isn't it? Yeah, so that's about my father's family. Yes. Um, 
And it's, uh, you know, this is about my father's parents, uh, his mother um, grew up in Berlin, his father grew up in Berlin, and uh, they had this small little weekend house, this Rockingland house, just outside of Berlin. And uh, so my grandmother's father, Alfred Alexander, was one of the most prominent doctors in Berlin. He was head of the Berlin Physicians Chamber. His parents included Albert Einstein, Martin Dietrich, the head of the Deutsche Theater, an incredible uh, array of dancers and artists and famous scientists. And his life was incredibly busy in Berlin, and then he wanted this weekend house. So he built this little tiny, it wasn't one of those great palazzios or villas, it was this tiny little villa overlooking this lake. It was nine meters by ten meters. It was like a dutcha, like a wooden one-level dutcha. And it was a wonderful place just to get away, and they had this just, you know, wonderful life uh, over the lake, you know, swimming and having parties. And then, of course, they were forced to leave Germany. Uh, and then the house got taken over by uh, a, a Nazi family, a publishing family, and then they were kicked out by the communists oh because the house end, ended up being in East Europe. And then in the 60s, uh, the Berlin Wall was built between the house and the lake. You know, oh so this, this tiny little house had seen a hundred years of German history. And it was a way of telling German history or the history of Europe through this tiny little house and the five families who'd loved it and lost it. Uh, and and then it ends with, without giving too much away, it ends with me and the family, my family, and our decision about what to do with the house, and then uh, engaging with the local community and setting up a charity so that we could then save the house and turn it into a place of education and rec- reconciliation. That sounds fabulous. And and in researching um, legacy and after researching for the house by the lake, what parallels did you find, if any? Well, I mean, it, I, I, many parallels. You know, this is a story of two families who had to leave Germany, come to Britain, uh, a, a century apart. Two families who struggled with assimilation. Two families who uh, dealt with anti-Semitism in Britain. Uh, two families who uh, were very different in terms of their culture and their class, uh, but were part of the wider British jury. Uh, and, uh, and and eventually they intermarried. Um, and uh, yes, yeah, so, so many similarities, but also differences. Yeah. Uh, because because of they had different legacies. So my mother's family, as we've been discussing, had this almost industrial aristocracy by the 1840s. They were considered part of the establishment. My father's family very much were not. Uh, you know, they were the newly arrived refugees with the German accents and struggling to get by. And interestingly, though, it was my grandmother, my father, my father's side, who kind of looked down on my mother's family. You know, because my, 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 they, she saw them as kind of, uh, retailers and, and shop owners. Right. <laughs> you know, whereas my, my father's family, he, he was a doctor. So sometimes the snobbery can go both ways. Absolutely. Uh, you know, but I mean, they, you know, it, it, that was really interesting, and also, you know, how they how they looked at their own histories. You know, the my mother's family was very was obsessed with themselves. They wanted to talk about themselves. Um, they wanted to memorialize their own stories. My father's family, because of the trauma of of the Nazi Germany and the Holocaust, they didn't want to look back. They only wanted to look forward. That's you know, so that was that was you know, there are there are. You know, definitely differences. And then on my mother's side, their view was we want to be more British than the British. You know, Judaism is a religion, nothing more than that. And so they, my mother's father, 
uh, so my mother's grandfather was part of a very large slice of British society which was against the formation of the state of Israel. Uh, their view was, you know, if you separate Jews out, if you create a homeland for Jews, you make them vulnerable for being kicked out of everywhere. All the countries in Europe will kick them out. And this was in the 1920s and 30s. And of course, the rise of National Socialism, Nazis, mm. the Holocaust, that changed mm. all that. Um, but, you know, with my father's family very much, much more in favor of Israel, Israel supporting members of the family went to Israel. So differences also how their personal experiences colored their views. You know, so you can see differences as well as similarities. Fascinating, really, really fascinating. Thomas, it has been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to chat to you. And Likewise, thank you so much. It's been a great conversation. Really, and to hear all about the research and the background of the family, I mean... I'm from from England. My mother lives there, and oh. yeah, I remember you know lions tea houses and everyone talking about yeah. them and hearing about them. <laughs> I don't think yeah. I ever went to one. I'm not that old, but um, uh, yes, I mean it's it's part of of my history too. So it's really an honour to be able to to hear all about it from you. And as I say, I'm thoroughly enjoying the book and it's written so beautifully. And thank you. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Liam, working on Legacy, you know, was a real pleasure for me and an eye-opener. So I'm glad you've been enjoying it. I really am. And um, I hope you'll, I mean, I know that, that this was instigated by your daughter when she uh, wants to know about the family. And I hope that she's enjoyed it. Yeah, so that was that was the beginning of the the beginning of the book, and yeah, she's been uh, she's been very much part of the process, and I hopefully the book answers many of her questions. I really hope so, and uh, I hope she she knows what a privilege it is to have a father who who's able to do this for the family. Well, she's 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 you know she's our privilege, so you know we're very proud of her. Fabulous, Thomas. Thank you so much for giving me your time. Thank you so much. Lovely chatting. Lovely chatting to you. Thanks so much. Enjoy the rest of your trip. Okay, all the best. Thank you. I love it when you read to me. This is People of the Book with Janice Leibovitz. Before the break, you were listening to my recorded telephonic interview with Thomas Harding, the author of Legacy, which is all about his family history of the Lions family, the Lions Tea Houses, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with. And if you are able to get hold of that book, as I said, Thomas Harding, Legacy, One Family, A Cup of Tea, and The Company That Took On the World. It really is a beautifully written history of a legacy that's been left by an amazing, incredible family. And it's a wonderful read. And, of course, that will be available on podcast. You'll be able to to find that on the Chai FM website during the week. And before that, I was telling you about um, Beryl Achenberger's review of the upcoming book by Gail Schimmel, which is called Two Months. And it's about what you would do. brings up a lot of questions. What would you do if you woke up not being able to remember the last two months of your life? And this is the premise of the book. I'm going to read you what Beryl Achenberger has said about the book. Primary school teacher Erica and her husband Kenneth have a good life. Erica's doing the job she loves. She's married to a man who loves her and the future looks bright. And until that morning when she wakes up and finds that the last few months are a complete void. Is this her brain reacting to an unpleasant experience? It's happened before, something that Erica is unaware of. And what could have derailed her life now? 
After her horrific experiences at high school as the object of vicious bullying, Erica has rebuilt her life. Her only obvious flaw is that she is fat, which, as we know, can be the perfect launch pad for toxic teenage girls. Their reign of terror had encompassed Erica's whole young life, her first boyfriend, her family, her car, a car accident, and an almost tragedy. But that was then. Today, she is confident, and while she doesn't have a huge circle of friends, after her experience at school, she is wary of getting too close to people. Those she has are loyal. How do you recover from from bullying? Repression is a good tool, and Erica doesn't think too much about that time. Instead, she embraces her adult life and the good fortune she has encountered. She is a strong, kind, and happy person who is abundant rather than fat. Adored by the loving Kenneth. Then one day, she's taken aback when her best friend from school, Caitlin, contacts her after years of silence. Agreeing to meet for coffee, the past seems to dissolve. But there is a niggle of doubt, which the kind Erica sweeps away. And then her carefully rebuilt world slowly starts to disintegrate piece by piece. Schimmel moves across the chapters using Erica's voice and the third person, unfolding a story of jealousy, repression, and outright denial until its shocking climax. She does this with empathy and astuteness. Schimmel has the capacity to evoke strong feelings from her readers with her all-seeing pen and sharp wit. You'll laugh and cry and inevitably gasp with horror as Schimmel unpacks a modern story that shows how human manipulation and using it in cyberspace can create illusions that have drastic consequences. As I say, this is a review from Beryl Eichenberger, who is a publicist, a reviewer. She's also one of the organizers of the Jewish Literary Festival, which, as you know, was postponed. Hopefully it will be held later this year. And this is a book coming out hopefully later this month, early next month, by Gail Schimmel. If you've read her previous books, one was The Park, one was The Accident, and I think one of her previous books was also what Whatever Happened to the Cowley Twins, I think was the name of it. She is really a fabulous author. She writes books that really have you asking yourself questions. I don't like comparing authors, but I would probably compare her to Jodie Picot. So if you enjoy her books, she's like a local Jodie. She is fantastic. She's witty. She's funny. She will have you laughing on one page, crying on the next, and you will probably finish her books within one week. She's one of those authors where you sit down and you race through the book and then regret it because you wish you would have savored it. And that's two months. And as we've said pre, as I said earlier, um, I know we're all self-isolating, sitting indoors. We've got the time to read now. And do consider supporting your bookshops, have books delivered to you if you're not going out to go and buy your books or order them online or order them to buy on, read on Kindle, order them through whichever um, platform you order on, but don't stop reading. And hopefully we can use this time constructively. We do have a lot of time on our hands now, hopefully. And I know a lot of people are using it to veg out on the couch and watch various video channels, movie channels, and uh, 
I know we're taking a lot of time to use it valuably with our children and everyone's trying to come to terms with this different kind of reality and how to do it constructively. It's a very new and different world that we are faced with. And I know that for us um, in the radio game, um, doing this from home is very new, quite challenging. did have a technical hitch at the beginning of the show. I apologize again for that. Um, I do have to thank Craig, my sound engineer, who is doing this from the studio, and we're trying to do this all remotely, and he's fabulous. So thank you, Craig, for all your hard work. And to DJ Flo, who's also been amazing. So for everyone who is still working in studio to keep everything up and running, you guys are amazing. And obviously we will keep all our listeners still listening. We hope you're still out there. And remember, you can still send your SMSs um, through chat on 34519. You can still message us on Telegram. 0618951019. You can visit me on my Facebook page, People of the Book. And I would still love to hear from you. I always want to hear what you're reading. If there's any suggestions, I would love to hear what you suggest, what you think other people should be reading, any inspiration. And um, I think we could all do with whatever inspiration you want to share with anyone. We would love to hear from you. So with that, I wish you all a great week stay safe stay healthy and i wish you all the best and i will chat with you again next week have a great week enjoy your reading and enjoy your time with your families